Looks like we're rolling. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we get into it? I don't know. Welcome back, man. I'm I'm happy to see you. It's been far too long. You've been gone for what a month? It was exactly a month. Last well, I've been back for a couple of days, but I was gone exactly one month. I, I've been absolutely lost. I've had nobody to talk to country music about. To, to country music, but I've just been walking around accosting strangers on the street, just to anybody who listen, and nobody wants to hear it. Nobody. That's why you were arrested. Yeah, like <laughs> Tinder dates are going south. Like <laughs> nothing's working, man. Nobody wants guy. to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, listen to my. I need to talk to you about the outlaw movement. So when you say they're going south, does that mean that they're not happening or lower quality? <laughs> yeah, a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> I was going to say, because I feel like you had some recently. <laughs> Is this just less frequent or less quality? <laughs> Drop off in quality. Well, I mean, I don't know. This when is you... an official apology to Sean's Tinder date from the last week. <laughs> Any of Sean's Tinder dates from the last week. Who are now much more educated in country music, whether <laughs> they wanted to be or not. <laughs> But seriously, baby, it's like the outlaw movement. <laughs> you need to listen to me. <laughs> wow, that just took an angry <laughs> turn for the worse. I am very passionate about the outlaw movement. So what, uh, I see you have a bottle there. Did that come back from, uh, from Mexico with you? It did not. It is from Mexico, but it is uh, something that they actually have in Ontario now. Uh, and it was just in time for today. Is We're recording this on... July 24th, which is National Tequila Day. So I thought it'd be pretty apropos to pull out George Strait's tequila, Code to Go 1530. This is the Rosa, and they just started bringing it in in Ontario. I saw this yesterday and grabbed it and then realized today was National Tequila Day, so it was perfect. I love that you just have a f- like semi, pretty much full bottle of tequila at, at your side. <laughs> We're, <laughs> we've got a good podcast today. I've got what to is, get fueled. So what is this drink you've made me here? Well, because Sean won't drink tequila straight, and not even this this isn't like your shitty sousa that like you can't drink that you need salt and lime or you're gonna puke. Ooh, that's delicious. Yeah. And it's really good stuff. And drinking straight up on his own is really the best way to do it. But my since he would not do that and I insisted on tequila on National Tequila Day. Uh, probably my favorite tequila cocktail is a Paloma. Little known, uh, the na- little known fact, the national drink of Mexico. I think everybody thinks it's margaritas, but Palomas is it. And it uh, is just tequila, and this would be a Blanco, and grapefruit juice, and some uh, club soda, and with an olive salt rimmer. So if you fancy little cocktail for you <laughs> to talk, <laughs> if you haven't figured it out, folks, today's entire episode will be about tequila while we get blind drunk on tequila. Exactly. <laughs> and I had to fit a way to talk about George Strait in an entirely unrelated episode where he had nothing to do with the outlaw movement. And I think we already snuck our Simpsons reference in when I said a little from column A, a little from column B. Oh, That's yeah. Simpsons, right? It is. That is <laughs> where that comes Maybe from. Maybe we can get two or three into this one. I hope so. So what are uh, we going to talk outlaw movement today? Yeah. And I think, like, I don't know what you have planned, but I was thinking where outlaw started, not what outlaw has come to today. Because I think a lot of people use it interchangeably and talking about, like, oh, this is so outlaw today. And, like, I think that has relevant connection to the past. But we're... What were you, you look like you're about to say something. Oh, I was just going to say that's, I think that's a very important distinction between um, 
what it is now, like you said, and what it was back then. I think it's important to to explore both sides of it. Um, you know, the, the term outlaw country was coined by a publicist named Hazel Smith. And I mean, that was in the, in the 70s. And it certainly meant something different back then to, than it does now. I mean, now it's become sort of synonymous with, you know, the modern country singers, guys like Cody Jinks, Sturgill Simpson, Whitey Morgan, guys that are um, really fighting back against like the bro country and they're, they're bucking that, uh, that trend. And they're seen as outlaws um, because they're doing something that's sort of perceived as not popular. Um, the funny side of that is, is, and it's also kind of similar to what happened way back when, is that, you know, labels are starting to see that this outlaw stuff is, is mm. it's marketable mm -hmm. and it's being marketed heavily, yeah. which is not, not, not necessarily a bad thing, but um, that's sort of what happened back in the day too and what inevitably kind of crushed the quote-unquote outlaw movement back then. Um, so, I mean, there is some, some similarities, but definitely um, some differences. But so I the, think the reason we're doing this today is because the previous two episodes were the Nashville sound, then the Bakersfield sound, and now the outlaw movement, trying to uh, do a bit of a deeper dive on like the main movements and evolutions and influences to where country music has come today, or like through through the mid part of the 20th century. Yeah, we're weaving together that tapestry of exactly. the history of country music. Yeah. Whether you want to hear it or not. <laughs> and then we'll get back to doing episodes about drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although the intro to this was heavily drinking drinking influenced. Um, I, I feel like the rest of it will be too. Yeah. We're going to keep talking about tequila all the way through. Yeah, we'll just keep slamming that bottle. and then You're going to try some of this straight before this show's done. Okay, fine. <laughs> but I got to go drop off my truck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, we, I think it's, uh, like we said, it's important to sort of make the distinction between what outlaw means um, today. And by doing that, um, we're going to have to take a deep dive, like you said. So before we get too much further into, you know, where outlaw music is today, where outlaw country is um, right now, I think we really need to go back about 50 years, uh, explore how the outlaw movement really came to be. Country, country music. Well, everybody thinks of Waylon and Willie as like the beginning of the outlaw movement and the be all and end all that. That was what that was. And they are for sure the most important and who made it very famous. But backing things up quite a bit to look at how everything began, uh, Hank Williams Sr. would have been the first outlaw or revolutionary country music badass, whatever you want to call it. Um, he was the first to turn the industry on its head, um, an impact that lasted long after he was gone. And a short while after he was gone, uh, the Nashville sound was born with a gear towards popification of country music. Uh, if you haven't yet, go back and listen to the previous episode um, all about the Nashville sound. So you, you almost feel like the whole the whole industry always had it out for for Hank Williams like the fact oh, that yeah. you know he's not in the country music hall of fame like or he was he was kicked out or whatever and never never put back in yet they still use his his Wasn't likeness asked back to the Grand Ole Opry yeah, yeah and he's still so heavily featured and it's like this is just another one of those things where it's just this pattern of disrespect um towards Hank Williams and it's like you're right he was such a badass and 
there's so many things that could be linked back to him. Like we, we do for sure have to do just like a full Hank Williams uh, episode at some point. Yeah. And so th- that's what I meant by like his, his impact lasted long after he was gone and a short while after he was gone, it was almost trying to erase that idea, like immediately into the Nashville sound, trying to popify. And, and part of this was, um, Memphis influence. So Nashville almost didn't become quote unquote Music City USA because Sam Phillips of Sun Studios in Memphis was making such a big splash with Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Charlie Rich, etc. The balance of power was almost shifting more to Memphis for the next evolution in country music and almost in a slightly more rockabilly way, uh, dropping off the honky tonk vibe and going more folk gospel rockabilly just think early johnny cash and elvis and even more rock and roll jerry lee lewis carl perkins styles and this was part of the drive for the nashville sound pressure to sell more records to become more of a hit machine and competition uh, for their artists to become bigger and cross over into pop charts and sell more records so there's this whole group of artists and songwriters in Nashville throughout all of this, like from the 50s through the 60s, through all of this, who are legit, awesome, great, like real country songwriters, but they're also becoming super successful writers with number one hits, a lot of which are like for bullshit songs that they hate, that they're just like writing for the number one pop hit at RCA or wherever. Um, and it's hard to walk away from that once it starts happening, right? Exactly. Like it's the, a big the money's flowing in, everything's going good. You're selling out shows. You, you're Sell, selling, selling out. out your, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pun intended. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, like the the Nashville the outlaw, what what started to develop of as an outlaw movement in later years is directly linked to the Nashville sound. It's almost a reaction too, and it was first started or for the 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 idea and the feeling the the resentment and the idea of uh wanting to change to something more real was started by people like willie nelson bobby bear uh mel tillis kinky friedman shell silverstein all these guys who were songwriters in that era i love shell silverstein oh man is there that freaker's ball album is like the greatest thing like and like even things that he never recorded, like he's got to be one of the most prolific songwriters ever of other people recording yeah. his music or his songs. And so what started to happen was a, a formation of a bit of a Nashville underground um, where after many of the Nashville songwriters were getting so disillusioned with what Nashville had become and with their own work too, uh, the savvier guys would meet down at Tootsie's before it became a big tourist spot and play songs for each other. Not songs that were like their latest big number one hit on Music Row, but songs they liked. Other songs they were writing, things that they were actually passionate about, not just writing for the number one hit paycheck. And this started to build a following in a bit of a Nashville underground within almost like a songwriter's clique. The Tootsies thing is funny too, being like referencing underground and Tootsies in the same in the same sentence, <laughs> right? If you've ever been in Nashville, how things have changed. Yeah, Tootsie's is like a giant corporate entity now. Like, there's a Tootsie's in the airport. Like, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't like, think I saw that. Yeah, it's a, it's like a, it's its own it's a brand now for huh. sure. It's a brand, but it's I mean it's still a cool spot to go into and see the history. But yeah, anyways. 
Well, so, so as this is happening, some artists began seeing the writing on the wall and that there was a shift coming or time for a shift. And the, the first, um, first guy really to do something about it was Bobby Bear. And he, he had written, um, he, he'd had a number of hits and some written by some virtually unknown guys at the time, like Tom Paul Glazer and Mel Tillis. Um, but it was he who was the first, like, if you want to call Maverick or the first person to demand complete creative control over his career in terms of what songs to record, what musicians to use in the session, etc. And he, he was the first to ask for it and the first to get it. And this set a new precedent in town, um, in, in a town that's notorious for what we talked about last time, like the, the A-team sessions um, with all the same musicians on Music Row. And, and it's really the suits and the record executive big wigs that were calling all the shots. And now Bobby Bear was the first guy that started to almost blaze a new trail, which helped the other disillusioned folks start thinking about independence from the big companies. Uh, and the funny thing about this Bobby Bear um album the situation is that you know like it started with um chet atkins he, he wanted bobby bear back um at rca he wanted him back on the label where did where did he go uh i don't know where he was from that point but atkins wanted him back and it's and it's funny that you know atkins played a role in this because we talk about yeah. atkins so much in the nashville sound yeah. um episode and so it's almost like he by him trying to get Bobby Bear back on his label, and the way that he got Bobby Bear back was um, that Atkins was trying to use himself out of production at this point, so he offered to let Bear produce uh, his own work for this album. Quote from Bear saying, you know, I, I didn't have to fight or wrestle or, or argue or anything about it. Chet Atkins just gave it up. Uh, I said, okay, and that was it. He gave it up. I didn't fight for it, meaning um, he didn't have to fight for... He, he did whatever he wanted for that um, for that album, which is really cool that Atkins sort of played this role. So um, it is kind of an odd thing that the catalyst or one of the catalysts for the whole movement, uh, it, it didn't involve anybody actually fighting for anything. It was basically handed the rights to, or the whatever, the rights to, to do his own album was basically handed to Bear. Um, but that being said, the act definitely created you know, a huge buzz and other artists began to start to fight for their own artistic freedom. That's so funny that we have the same thing and the same story that we read and researched on, but with, it's funny how history works with like different angles. Yeah. From the angle that I was finding was he was demanding uh, artistic freedom and creative control over everything and he got it. And the angle you're seeing it from or researched was that it was essentially the bait that Chet Atkins threw at him to get him back on the label where he didn't demand anything. He was given it. And then yeah. other people saw, Oh, you can do that. Yeah. It's funny how that works. I hope yeah. things get twisted. And I mean, a, a lot of the time it's all hearsay, right? It, yeah. It, well, I he's mean, alive. So we like, you could still ask him. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. We should, we should, we should reach out to him. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, I, w I wonder if he's on Instagram or something. Everybody, five star reviews. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need enough get us clout up there. to reach out to Bobby Bear. <laughs> we promise you a Bobby Bear interview if you just give us five stars. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, he, so he he did set a huge precedent with this album, and um, 
you know, when Waylon Jennings heard that Bobby Bear was producing himself. Um, well, let, before we get, let, let's let's not get to Waylon yet. Let, let, let's pump the brakes for a minute. Well, all, all I was basically going to say is just that it's like, it was the catalyst. It's like guys like Waylon started to hear this and were like, oh, shit, I got to do this too. And then it, it created this avalanche of, they realized that they could do this, mm-hmm. you know. In the yeah. past, they couldn't. It was all, they were spoon-fed everything. Here's, but it wasn't, the it, wasn't, it wasn't like that one thing happened and everyone realized. Like, no, I mean, like there was a, a slow, few different... Slower evolution over like four or five years. And it is funny because there is a few different, like if you ask different people or you read different interviews or whatever, some people don't even say this Bobby Bear thing was the first thing. There's there's other stuff people, you know, there's there's other incidents or whatever occurrences that people feel were the true start of Do you remember of what movement. any of those were? Well, a lot of people talk about um, when Willie uh, moved back to Austin, which was... Uh, hit, that wasn't before this. Time that, was, that was, yeah, that was uh, early 70s when his house burnt down in Nashville. Bob, Bobby Bear, that was the late 60s. No, that, that, that happened in 1970. I thought that was 1969. Uh-oh. 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 Well, if the... Yeah. Or one year off. <laughs> but... Uh, I, and it's it became this thing where you know Willie went back to Texas mm-hmm. and started doing his own thing out there. We've talked about this numerous times about how Texas is just its own thing. Like, yeah, we're we're gonna do a, a whole Texas episode. Yeah, very that's soon. that's gonna be real yeah. fun. That's one where we should like we need to try and get somebody on to talk to us about it, like from Texas in the scene. Let's work on that. Yeah, we'll work on that. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I mean that was a- another one where it sort of broke off, right? It was like where we we talked about the whole Bakersfield uh, sound was sort of like an offshoot, and it's like these things a lot of times happen concurrently, and you know we see you know maybe different the same thing happening concurrently in two different sort totally. of scenes, which is a good segue uh, to Chris Christopherson. So he not exactly outlaw. Um, Definitely a big influence of it and a friend of it. Um, I, I guess you, you, yeah, I guess you would say he's part of the movement, but he's he's just so many other things too that I, I don't think of him quite in the same way as I think of him as as Waylon or Willie or Tom Paul. But he he came before that and he started to again blaze a trail, show that like there is a possibility of independence from like Music Row in Nashville from like big record companies. Because this was a guy who didn't really fit in in the first place. He was like a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, a Vietnam helicopter pilot. He dressed in suits and skinny ties. Um, and then he started acting in movies. And he, he, w- he spent half his time in California and half his time in Nashville. And between L.A. and Texas and Nashville, he was building this band of like kind of hippie country guys, long-haired people singing about sex and drugs. And that was just such a shift for the scene that was another um, almost trailblazer or influencer to people like Waylon being like, oh, man, like you can do this. I think a lot of people, this is a total sidebar, that movie um, with Lady Gaga and What's-His-Face, The Star, a Star is Born, like that was Christopherson in the original, right, with uh, Barbra Streisand? I didn't know there was an original. Yeah, I haven't even seen the new one. No, so. me neither. But okay. it, I'm 100 percent on this. That was the oh, cool. That was the original, yeah. And his his he's been in some real cool movies. And he oh, seemed like lot, yeah. his scene was like the coolest scene around. You know what I mean? Like I have some records of his where it's just like 
There's one where he's just like shirtless on the back, like standing in like a waterfall with like a dog and like his yeah. wife or whoever. And there's like all his buddies are like, it just looks like it was the best scene ever. Like yeah. probably something similar to like when the band recorded like music for Big Pink or whatever. Right. Like, um, just one of those scenes where it was like every, it just looked like a compound. Yeah. Like one of those music compounds. I would totally rather be in that scene than the band scene. <laughs> yeah. That probably was a bit out there. Yeah. <laughs> they were a band of weirdos. <laughs> I love them, but yeah. Yep. Uh, where are we? So uh, Christopherson, yeah, his influence was a big deal. Um, I, have a funny I guess he, he had like a give no fucks attitude yeah. that really. I think that's part of the thing that clicked for the rest of them. It wasn't necessarily specifically the musical style or anything. It's that you don't have to be part of Nashville establishment, big wig scene. You can do things differently. You can give no fucks and you can still be super, super successful. He was probably the most successful of all of them, all things considered with like movie star and everything on yeah, top of it. Yeah, he had a lot of crossover stuff. Oh, yeah. Even within his music, right? Like he did so many different types of albums and so yeah. many um like duets or like you know full albums with other artists and yeah he was just kind of an everyman of, of mm-hmm. the scene yeah so maybe the guy that is in a way most important to this story but musically not i don't know i've never i i can't name one tom paul glazer song that i like and like I always just think of throw a log on the fire and I fucking hate that song. Put another log on the fire. Oh, oh wait, that, do we have like, to pay royalties because I just sang that? Probably. <laughs> Damn it. Get my slippers and fill my pipe and all this like oh, But that man. song's got a it's tongue in cheek, right? It's tongue in cheek, but it sucks. Yeah. I don't know. I hate it. It's like I, I don't like it for any satirical value or anything, but <laughs> like I, I get what it is and what it was and that's cool, but Actually, like, no word of a lie, the first time, I don't know how this was the first time I heard that song, but it was on, like, a Roger Allen Wade album. Do you know that guy? No. I think, I'm. don't quote me on this, but I guess you can. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're rolling. We're rolling. You're being quoted on everything. I'm, like, pretty sure he's Johnny Knoxville's uncle, and mm. uh, he does, like, sort of David Allen Coe-ish stuff, and, I mean, his name's Roger Allen Wade, so it's, like, you know what I mean? He's obviously yep. playing off that. But I heard it on one of his albums, and I was, same thing. I was like, "Man, this song's dumb." And yeah. then I, I heard it like so many other times. I'm like, "Why are people covering?" I'm like, "Oh, it's not her. He was covering it." Now yeah. I get it. Yeah, the last horse is crossing the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, something was said. Something was said. There's your other Simpsons reference. Two. You're at two. Uh, so originally, he was part of the Glazer Brothers. Uh, they had some hits in Nashville and some songs he, like, I, I think it was like late 60s that him and his brothers had some hits as a band. And he'd written some songs that went on to be big hits for people like Bobby Bear. I, I think he wrote um, The Streets of Baltimore and a number of other things. And so he wanted to follow in the wake of Bobby Bear and this new idea that artists could make more demands and start to have more creative control over their own music and negotiate contracts, but no executives would meet with him. This is somebody who was like the epitome of what was being derogatorily called hillbillies in Nashville at the time, not like just a legit songwriter or a music exec, but like long haired hillbilly singer. And nobody would take him seriously in negotiations, talking about money or production or anything. So he was a pretty sharp dude, and he decided to fix this problem by 
creating a production company and incorporating himself as Glazer Productions and made himself president. So now as the president of Glazer Productions, representing Tom Paul Glazer, he was able to meet and negotiate with whoever he wanted. Uh, furthermore, he bought a building on 19th Avenue and turned it into an office uh, just far enough away from Music Row to be cool, but close enough to be in the middle of everything and called it Hillbilly Central. And it was a place that was exactly what it sounded like, a rowdy Nashville hillbilly hangout with an amazing recording studio in the back. And it attracted many like-minded individuals like Waylon Jennings. And I think, you know, if we're going to get into Waylon here, so he comes out with his album, uh, Honky Tonk Heroes, 1973. That and the Bobby Bear album we talked about, um, Lullabies, Legends, and, and Lies. Oddly enough, actually came out after um, Honky Tonk Heroes, but started before it. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, that was obviously, we talked about it, how that was sort of the first the first one, but then it inspired Waylon to move on, to go on and um, do this album uh, himself. And they, they just kind of, they let him do what he, he wanted to do. They let Waylon, you know, go a little you know, go a little crazy with this, uh, this album. He, he did it all himself. And I think that album really sort of personifies what, you know, he was about and what the movement was about. And I think those are two very, um, very important albums. Um, and then from there, you know, Willie puts out an album in 74, uh, phases and stages. So you had 73 and 74, you had three very, influential records for this for this part of the movement you're forgetting about um ladies love outlaws i see that as the, it was 1972 and i see that as an inflection point of all of this um it was uh lee clayton wrote ladies love outlaws and he wrote it about Waylon jennings and i think he showed it to chris christopherson and i, I think the quote was something like Christopherson says to Clayton, well, it sounds like uh, you have the next me and Bobby McGee, but for Whalen or something like that. And uh, he's like, this will be a great hit for old Whalen. And he passed it along to Christopherson, passed it to Whalen Jennings. And he loved it, cut the song and made a whole album out of, out of the title. And th this is before Outlaw wasn't a term yet. And that was really just like where how things started to get going. And it's funny that I would forget about that album considering I'm wearing... You're wearing a shirt, a shirt. that says Ladies Love Outlaws <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, all this stuff, a lot of it happens like right around the same time. And I think, you know, we could sit here and argue all day about which was the actual, you know, original thing that started it. There's a really funny uh, Steve Earle story I was reading, and this one's kind of dumb, but... He says it right in the thing that this is what started the outlaw movement. Uh, he said this whole outlaw thing happened because uh, Doug Sam, I don't, I don't even know really who this is, Doug, uh, mainly because he couldn't get Big Red, a bright red soft drink that tastes like bubble gum. Um, he leaves San Francisco and goes back to Texas, uh, and it was him that told Willie Nelson that he could play Armadillo World Headquarters, which I think we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and he said, he told Willie, you know, um, come down here, play Armadillo World Headquarters. And so as Steve Earle says, like, um, 
this is how we got Shotgun Willie. This is how we got Phases and Stages by this guy moving back to Texas for this soft drink and telling Willie he needs to come down there. And I, I think this story was told a bit tongue in cheek. Yeah. We know, you know, Willie went down there for his own reasons. His house burnt down, like yeah. this kind of stuff. Moved back home. Yeah, moved back home, which is what you do when something like that happens. Yeah. But also, I think Willie wanted the the freedom that could be had in that in that scene. Um, you know, it didn't have the music, uh, the big business infrastructure of the scene. Uh, artists more didn't flexibility. have to, yeah, they had more flexibility. Um, there, you know, lots of times artists would go back to Nashville to record um, albums, but the music scene, uh, they would go back to the scene in Texas to. I heard he used to live at for a certain amount of time, like in the back, had a cot in the back of Floor's Country Store, in uh, just outside of San Antonio, like this legendary honky tonk. And he like used to pretty much live there. <laughs> it's funny. There's a lot of places like that in country music history where it's like almost like flop houses, right? Where mm. it's like so many artists stayed at. Like there's that. I think we've talked about this before, but like there was that that song, um, the trailer for Sailor Ram. Yeah, like, yeah. That's actually about like a trailer, a trailer that there, they all yeah. stayed in, and like. But yeah, it's it's cool. Like we should we should dig deeper into some of that and like talk about like some classic honky tonk haunts where they Ooh, they all lived. One. Yeah, that would be a good one. But yeah, I found that that Steve Earle uh, story kind of funny. But you know, and it's what this started to do. This whole movement it really loosened up the whole the whole culture as well. Like you hear people talk about a lot of it. It was it was unheard of for like these session session musicians from back in the Nashville sound era to like drink or smoke pot. But then all of a sudden, like they start to get free reign to do this. They're writing their own music. They're not being, they're not telling, this is the song you're cutting today. It's like everything started to open up. Um, and you know, I, I, I think it's undeniable that the, the drinking and the drugs, that kind of thing also contributed to the whole outlaw moniker. Um, because it wasn't, again, it wasn't popular at the time. It, it was, it was frowned upon for artists to be doing that that kind of thing when we all knew they were doing it, but it was to bring it to the forefront, to talk about it, to openly do it, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess, uh, well, if if we need to say anything more about Willie would be really just following his musical career, you can see the evolutions of everything because he's been there since the mid-50s. And he was very much Nashville, like Nashville sound, music row establishment. Uh, he wrote a ton of songs for everyone from Patsy Cline to Roy Orbison. Um, and then he also became part of the dis disillusion set in Nashville and uh, was also good friends with Waylon and Christofferson. So when Willie's sound changed in the early 70s, maybe as per your story of going back, uh, it was really, you can point to Shotgun Willie um, and maybe, what was... Phases and Stages. No, what was the one before Shotgun Willie? Um, I forget, I'd have to look it up. There's uh, Shotgun Willie was 73 and there was something in 72. Um, <clears throat> that th Those two were really the title shift for his career. And ar around the same time was the title shift of Whalen's with Ladies Love Outlaws and Good-Hearted Woman. And then after that, later there was Honky Tonk Heroes and everything. So th those were the beginning stages of the sound starting to change. And uh, right around when they started hanging out with Tom Paul Glazer and at Hillbilly Central, while everyone was still in Nashville or coming back to Nashville and starting to 
um, make all their own creative decisions. And then a couple of years later, you have Willie singing show tunes on uh, an album like Stardust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally, like, yeah. I think 1978. So it's funny. It was, you know, we talk, like, it, uh, this is probably going to be a long episode and we have a lot to talk about, but it's it's probably, like, one of the shortest movements we're talking about. Like, if you if put it oh, up yeah. against, yeah, like, I'm Nashville gonna... Sound or Bakersfield Sound, like, Outlaw Movement. Like 73 to 78? Yeah, that's arguably... In, in, in an official sense. Not yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe not even... Okay. Yeah, like, it was probably burning out by that. But it's funny, like, it. a lot of times you see this like you see with artists it's like when something gets real hot and it burns hot like that it's like it it burns out just as fast as it lit you know yeah totally and so okay let's talk about where the name came from because everybody seems to think or like over exaggerate that everybody was like going to jail and there were outlaws and like real badasses not really they kind of like if they got in trouble with the law, it was mostly for drunk driving or possession charges. They were more kind of rowdy cowboys that were out all night, like playing pinball and just like being very different than the whole Nashville establishment. The funny thing is, is the name itself eventually got them in trouble. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the cops, everybody self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, they yeah. started to believe the hype, and they're like yeah. raiding their shows, and like they're like, what? Like, so what? What started to happen? Once their music style started to change, before there was a moniker to it, some people were calling it cowboy music because they dressed and acted like rowdy cowboys, partying all night, etc. But the singing cowboy as like a music trope was already a thing in the past, like Roy Rogers and all of that. So it wasn't a unique name, and you didn't want to have to differentiate. No, 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 not like Roy Rogers singing cowboy, cowboy music. This is like new cowboy music. So that didn't really stick. Uh, some people started calling it progressive country, um, but that sounded too hippie or leftist or outsider, and all these guys were already part of the Nashville, the Nashville establishment but were wanting to change it around. Other things people were calling it were simply like Waylon's music or Willie's music or Tom Paul's music because it was that different from everything else going on. Well, and Waylon and Willie were so prolific at that point in time. Yeah. And so where it really came from was um, Hazel Smith. She was the PR manager for Hillbilly Central. And by this point, uh, like obviously Tom Paul had started that, but Waylon was in it and part of it. Uh, Everybody was in the scene. And it was it, the style of music was building hugely, and um, so in 1973, a DJ from Asheboro, North Carolina, uh, had a Sunday afternoon show, and they were exclusively playing the music of Tom Paul, Waylon Christopherson, Willie, what would come to be known as outlaw music. And, but they didn't have a name for it. And so they had the Sunday afternoon show, but needed to call it something, needed a hook or a name. So they ended up calling Hillbilly Central for an interview and looking uh, essentially to get a name or a moniker for what, uh, what, what they were playing. So they were talking to Hazel and said, what do you call the music you're making? What, do you, what are you guys doing? What do we call this? Um, cause there wasn't a name for it up until that point or not an official name. And Hazel's a pretty sharp PR lady. And she just kind of sat there and thought about it for a second and quickly came out with, yeah, call it outlaw music, uh, outlaw. Yeah. Outlaw music. And that was all 
kind of probably spurred by, kind of probably, why did I say that? that <laughs> kind of probably. That, that would have been spurred by Ladies Love Outlaws and, and that idea. That's why I think that song was such an inflection point, even if they didn't know it yet at that point, for what was to come. And from there, it's, it stuck. That, that was the name. And, and I think this is the point that the industry people, the label guys, everybody just started salivating. You yep. know, they were just drooling over this, seeing, oh, shit, this is marketable. Yep. This is marketable in a yep. huge way. And inevitably, the naming of the movement immediately triggered the, you know, the downfall of the movement. And it's like, you know, after this, I, you know, I, I think it's important to talk about um, that that album, uh, the Wanted, uh, the Outlaws. That one was like, uh, it was Willie Whalen. That Willy was the first Whalen. country music platinum album in history. Yeah, which is wild, right? And they just played um, so hardcore on that name. Like, it, so it was Willie Whalen, uh, Jesse Coulter, and who else was on that? Tom was Paul. it Tom Paul Glazer? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they went as far as like, the cover of the out al- like I have this album at home. It's it's cool. Yeah, looking, so do I. It's like right over there. The cover looks like a Wild West like yeah. wanted poster, um, and uh, they're really playing on this this whole outlaw thing. And yeah, multi platinum uh, or platinum certification. Um, but then you know a lot of people say it's like this album is what started it. I don't you can't say legitimized because it was already in full swing. But it's like it put a label on it that caused the whole movement to start to sort of you know eat itself i guess and uh you know a really cool album but a little bit over the top on the whole the whole outlaw theme you know what i mean putting in putting it as the wanted poster um and you know uh, i was reading again i referenced steve roll a lot but he has a lot of good interviews out there but um you know he had a song uh on that album as well uh i'm gonna forget the name of the song but anyways he had an album on a song on that album and, you know, he really talks about, you know, how this was the downfall of it when they started to really talk about, you know, sort of like the being the outlaws, the hardships and all this stuff is when they started to lose touch a little bit um, with their fans because people didn't really, it's a little bit hard to identify with, right? Like these outlaws who are, you know, doing all these drugs and out on the road and living this life. And it's like country music used to be about the working man, right? And it kind of shifted away from that. And th- this album, I think, was another key, uh, key point. As popular as it was, you know, it, it sort of triggered the, uh, the downfall of things. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, you mentioned earlier there uh, Jessie Coulter. We haven't talked about her very much. Um, she would easily be the most important female involved in this movement. She was also Waylon Jennings' wife. Um, not when they started, though. She, I think her first album was around 1970. Um, it was called uh, A Country Star is Born, and she had that song, uh, I'm Not Lisa, that was, I think, a pretty big hit, but the overall record, I don't think, was a huge deal. Um, but I, th- I, th- I feel like Chet Atkins produced that or maybe co-produced it with Waylon Jennings, and then from there she more started to run in the circles of the hillbilly central and those guys and that was how she started to become part of uh that well other than the relationship with whalen but like her music style was very much that i feel like she was on a major label throughout the entire time um 
yeah, she she was probably on Capital or RCA or something like that. Uh, but people but, love that that Whalen and and Jesse relationship too, right? Like everybody loves that. Like that's it's undeniable when you like the Johnny and June kind of thing, and that's uh, an absolute other thing that's just like you can market the hell out of it. Yeah. Well, one of the records that I remember most like, growing up, and it, it was. Because uh, my, my dad loved Waylon Jennings and Leather and Lace. It was from the early 80s. Yeah, but I have that, that album. Yeah, that duet That's album. It's a great cover, yeah. too. Oh, yeah, so good. I uh, think Waylon's like sitting in a big chair and, and she's, she's like, like standing behind yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. Like, such a classic yeah. kind of pose. Yeah, yeah, great, great record. And loved her stuff all, all the way through. She, I don't think she ever had any like super hits. Like there was no rainy day woman or redheaded stranger or anything like that but was a very important part of that movement i was reading and i i don't i don't know much about her and i didn't really have time to to do too much research but um sammy smith she was cited by a few you know whatever stories i was reading about the outlaw movement she was an, uh, another what people said a uh, big part she wrote uh help me make it through the night uh, or sorry, uh, she was best known for, I guess she released it. That was written by Christofferson, I guess. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, apparently she, because she was, started releasing stuff right in the middle of that, that whole movement as well. So uh, yeah, I think I'm going to take a deeper dive into uh, some of her stuff too. Because I'm mm -hmm. not overly familiar with, uh, with her. The, f the funny thing about where this all went is when when you look at old documentaries and everything, one of the things they focus on is how crazy the fan movement went for this. Everybody was buying cowboy hats and it was all of a sudden very Western again. Everyone was acting super outlaw, trying to be badass, really emulating what they thought the image of Waylon Jennings and everybody was. And uh, I think, what was it, 1976 that Wanted came out? Uh, yeah. 76. Yeah, so... Between 76 and 78, this exploded. It was huge. They, they were the biggest things in country music. And, and then quickly imploded. Quickly <laughs> imploded. And the 1978 album uh, from Waylon Jennings called I've Always Been Crazy has a song on it called Don't You Think This Outlaw Bit's Done Gone Out of Hand. And it's all about how kind of like, wait, wait a second, like this is getting crazy. Uh, and a couple of the choice lines from there are uh, someone, someone called us outlaws in some old magazine and New York sent a posse down like I ain't never seen. Don't you think this outlaw, bit, outlaw bit's done gone out of hand? And essentially a commentary of like, wow, this is out of control now. This, this, it's become a caricature of itself, really. Well, and he, and he even references in the song what we were talking about earlier is them getting raided like mm -hmm. after a show by the cops. Mm -hmm. Like because they just were perceived as these badass and yeah they were probably doing a lot of drugs like i was at the time he waylon jennings had a 1500 a day uh cocaine habit 1500 in 1978 dollars so let, let's put this into perspective in the height of kurt cobain's heroin addiction it was a 400 a day habit <laughs> so that and that would have what in the 90s yeah so that was '90s dollars. This was '70s, '15. That's in. That, who, how could you even? How would you even have a nose? It's, I don't know. Like he, he's he's famously one of the most druggiest artists of anything. That's that's unbelievable. Like I, I feel like we would need to mathematically break down how much cocaine you would need to be doing <laughs> to achieve that. Like yeah. you know, and 
I think speed was a real huge thing oh, yeah. at the time. They used to like, uh, and I my last Steve Earle thing, I promise. But it's because I read. Do this. you have a Steve Earle quote dictionary? Because <laughs> it seems like you come out with these hilarious Steve Earle quotes that are relevant to any topic we talk about. Because he he's uh, he's a very like. He's very opinionated, which is awesome because his opinions are awesome. So it's like anytime I start researching something, all these Steve Earle interviews pop up. And there was this one where like Steve Earle came onto this scene in 74. And he, he so he was kind of in the middle of it. You know what I mean? So he, he saw it a little bit from the outside. Like he got there in the height of the craziness. But when he got there, uh, Guy Clark made him go see this doctor that they know because this doctor was given prescriptions for speed. And there wasn't enough prescriptions or enough speed going around. So immediately, the first thing Steve Earle had to do to get sort of initiated into the scene was go get a prescription for speed. (laughs) (laughs) And then he talks about how like he was so like he didn't do a lot of speed because he was so like he was almost like he was already on. speed. How do you get a prescription for speed? Like I understand that back in the day, medical science was pretty wonky, like oh, you're not feeling well? Here's a prescription for cigarettes or like ginger ale was oh, supposed to cure what you have, you. You have ghosts in your blood? Do cocaine about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like what? What? If you're depressed? I don't even know what speed is. Isn't it just speed, an amphetamine? It's a major upper. I don't know what amphetamine means, but it's a, it's a major upper. Like so you, there has to be a like a, a use for it in, to get a prescription. or cause well, that's, how, what, that's the question I'm asking. Yeah, like, I don't well, know. What the hell do you do to get a prescription for speed? Like, are you depressed that you like they want to like turn you around? And, well, I think this guy was just a crooked doctor. Yeah, but still, the fact that it existed as a prescription medicine that you could get a prescription for, what are the categories for which you need to fulfill... A prescription to get speed. All right. Any doctors or anybody <laughs> listening? We don't any feel like old doctors yeah. from the seventies. <laughs> I don't feel like googling this. So, you know, chime in. We're not looking for the prescription. We're just yeah. <laughs> we want some speed legally. <laughs> Although please. we would be banging out these episodes a lot quicker <laughs> if someone just prescribed us some goddamn speed. <laughs> oh man. Oh, we really went on a on a tangent. There. I don't even remember what we were talking. We were about. talking about the fifteen hundred dollar a day. Oh yeah. Um, cocaine but that was habit. a tangent. Nah, that's, what was that a tangent from? Oh, uh, well, we were just talking about how they got busted after oh, that show. How it became a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah. That's right. well, because it was a lyric in, in the song. Yeah. Uh, don't you think this all up isn't that, that, that one? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's kind of it. And then after that, it start, started to fall apart. And really, like, I think 1978 is famously the end of good country music. Um, I love that Whitey Morgan's band is called Whitey Morgan in the 78s, and it's specifically for that reason because that was the end of real country. I didn't know that. I thought it was because of like records, like nope. 78s. Nope. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. He just, I, I didn't think it was possible, but he just got way cooler in my eyes. Yeah. Like he, I, I know that for a fact. He told me that when I met him a couple years ago at a backstage party, and which was one of the drunker nights of 2015. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, until George Strait came along, uh, like three years later, there it, it was kind of barren. I was reading a quote um, from a music critic named Dave Hickey who uh, told a story that he kind of felt really signified part of the end of this. And he was, he was sitting on an airplane next to this, what he called a roughneck guy coming in from an offshore oil rig. And they got to talking um, and he asked him, uh, the oil rigger guy asked this, this Dave Hickey music critic guy what he did. And he said, I write uh, about country music. And the guy says, those country singers, they used to sing about us. Now all they, si- all they do is sing about each other. 
And it's like, it's precisely what I was saying. It's like yeah. this, these songs they that they touch. were writing, they, they lost touch. And they're singing about these hardships that they're facing when it's like, I had read another quote somewhere where it was something like, they're driving around in tour buses that are worth more than most of these people's houses mm-hmm. and they're complaining about it, mm-hmm. you know? And all of a sudden people start to say, hey, what that is ain't this? Real. That ain't real. Yeah. And uh, that's sort of where the scene just began to kind of implode, fall in on itself, eat itself, whatever you want to call it. So I know Waylon Jennings is your all-time favorite artist, even though you uh, made a very good argument for why George Jones was the greatest of all time. Um, what are some of your favorite Waylon songs or just outlaw country songs in general? We'll, we'll wrap up here, but we'll leave a bit of a... Well, actually, we'll, we'll make a whole playlist, to, a companion playlist to go with this. But Yeah, we will definitely do that. And make sure to go check us out on, uh, on Spotify. We have a country country music um, account where we're now doing playlists for, uh, to go along with every episode. Um, so you can listen right along. We've got uh, playlists for all the back episodes, all that kind of stuff. So go check it out and uh, you know give us a follow on Instagram and wherever else. What, what other? What else are we on Facebook? Uh, are we on Facebook? We are, but it's not very active. No, it's really Instagram that's really. Oh, go go bump Instagram up. And Twitter. Uh, I'm in charge of Twitter, so go bump up my followers before Andrew gets mad at me. I think we've got 15 <laughs> on there right now. 15? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I feel like Twitter has more potential than Instagram. I'm trying, man. I'm really trying. Okay, so what are we talking about here? Some some, some of your favorite, favorite songs. songs. Um, I want to hear what your favorites are. This is your favorite guy. What's what's? Give me the, give me your top five. We talked about Christopherson a lot. I, I yep. love Sunday Morning Coming Down. I've always yep. loved that song, man. Yep. It's just such a like the imagery in that song. Um, he paints and a picture. He really does. And we've he all just, been there. He paints a picture of a hangover. A hangover. Like, yeah, I absolutely. feel like it's almost like you feel hungover Smell while listening Sunday to it. Sunday chicken frying. Every, yeah. Yeah, like you're walking around contemplative, yeah. like like that kind of stuff. Um, what else? I really like uh, that Willie Nelson song, "Me and Paul." I think it's. Uh, I don't know. It just got a real cool vibe. It's a, it's about his drummer uh, uh, Paul English, and. Uh, it's just got a. It's I don't know. Just the vibe of the song. It's so different than a lot of the stuff that uh, that he's written, and uh, I think that's a really cool song. Uh, what else? I don't know. Waylon. What are your favorite Waylon songs? I think we could do an entire episode on my favorite Waylon songs. I but believe we could. I want to go outside of the because I think it's just a given, right? No, like, I want to know. Well, if it's got to be pertaining to this particular episode or just favorite Waylon songs in general. Feel. I love like Waymore's Blues. Oh yeah, um, that's one of my favorites. Freedom to Stay is my favorite Waylon Jennings song. Oh if yeah, not my favorite song of all time. Oh, um, I recorded it, a cover of it on my last album. Uh, you did. Um, I love Wurlitzer Prize. We've talked yep. about that song before. I think in the Heartbreak episode. So those would be some of my favorite Waylon songs. Cool. Um, I don't know if I have. I really like. Uh, I think Poncho and Lefty. It's a Towns Van Zant song. We didn't really talk about him. I don't think he plays a lot into. Um, this whole movement, but I think the song itself, you know, was recorded so many times, came out in 72, right in the heart of all this. Um, and I really do want to, I think we had said we were going to do a, uh, a songwriters episode. So I'm excited to do that episode mm-hmm. and talk a little bit more about Towns Van Zandt. Yeah. He's one of my favorite artists. Yeah, me too. Uh, last one I'd say probably, well, maybe two. I like that Jerry Jeff Walker song, Pissing in the Wind, because I think mm. it's just hilarious. I yeah. love the <laughs> intro where he's like, this song is dedicated to all that, you know, like he's like doing, <laughs> I think he's mocking, um, 
I can't remember what song it is. I think it's maybe To Beat the Devil by Chris Christopherson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyways, it's real funny. You could tell they were just giving each other some good-natured ribbing. And then I like that Ray Wiley Hybrid song, uh, Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother, because mm. it's just, it's hilarious. It's yeah. a hilarious song. Anyways, what are your, some of your favorites? Uh, you covered a bunch of them um, for Whalen to go outside of the good-hearted woman and everything that everybody loves. Um, really like... Uh, Actually, maybe Bob Wills is still the king. Is oh. one of my lesser, yeah, one of my one of the lesser known favorites of Waylon Jennings. If you haven't heard it, check it out. Yeah, uh, it's a great song. It, it's on the live version, and it's also on. I forget which is the studio record that has it on there. Um, T is for Texas. Really like that one. Yes. Yeah, it's a it's a good vibe on that. Um, who wrote that song? Do you know who wrote that song? I'm just curious. I don't. That's put you, put you on question. the spot. I'll Google it. Go ahead. Keep. How's you. your tequila doing over there? We didn't even get through half the bottle. <laughs> I'm about to pour you a shot. Are we uh, are we recording uh, another episode tonight, or are we free to get drunk? We are free to get drunk. This is cool. a one-episode night. That's a rare one. Jimmy Rogers wrote it. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an old song. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've heard the, the original is like very lo-fi, old school. Yeah, yeah. I love that, uh, but I love the that Whalen Live album that I think it starts with. It's my with, favorite with album of his. It yeah, does. It's so good. Ladies and gentlemen, Whalen Jennings. Amanda. Amanda. I love Amanda. That's one of my I favorite. Love my love. That's a good song. Particularly the live version. Um he was almost just better live than he was on his recorded stuff. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that about Will and Jennings because you kept ca- it captured his energy so much more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have her also on the. Uh, I don't want her. You can. Have yeah, that's a great yeah. song. Such a good tune. Uh, oh, it's gonna be a fun playlist to make for everybody. Oh yeah. Our what playlists is. are they're um, off the chain, if I would say so myself. So get on there, get on Spotify, and listen to those playlists. Big Ball in Cowtown, his version of that. That's a that's a uh, Bob Wills tune, but he does a great cover of it. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, that's fine. Said. I like that song too. Yeah. Oh, this time that's another. Oh man, just all his stuff. He's just so good. Yeah, we'll have to do. I want to do like. Uh, like a heavy hitters of, of country music, like where we do ep- episodes dedicated to specific artists. Like, I think it'd be real fun to do, like sort of the big, big guys. And just chat everything we like about Waylon and other. Yeah. 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 You could even have a George Strait one. I, I feel like we've already. Yeah, we kind of jo- did. Yeah, George. Covered ad nauseum. Yeah. Jones and Strait are kind of. Well, you didn't do your straight talk. The lasers that are supposed to be steel guitars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like the straight talk was um, in the tequila context earlier. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay, that's, but that's good. W- maybe we'll wrap up with some straight talk on this same tequila where you're gonna try some of this straight. Oh, this is gonna destroy me. So the thing I think that Sean is afraid here is everybody has like bad tequila stories. I don't have one. You I've know, just never, for never some like reason, puked and had like bad no. shots. At, oh. No, well then maybe not you've just tequila. not had good tequila because, like, it's usually all the shitty Cuervo and Sousa and all that garbage that isn't even really tequila. But when you have like hundred percent agave, awesome stuff, and this Codigo is great. 
uh, and just so happens to be owned by George Strait. So how are you going to you going to try and slide this down? I'm totally going to slide this down. We often slide things across this table full of electronics. Only halfway. I'll get it. You're, you'd be a horrible curler. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm back. Oh man, yeah, that's just. So we shooting this right now? No, we're not shooting it. We're sipping it. This oh, is I thought that, I tequila. thought we had to shoot it. No, man, this is <laughs> sipping tequila. Oh, we're gonna sip this tequila. Yeah. Happy tequila day, everybody. Although this, sipping. it makes no sense because we're not gonna release this on tequila day. That makes some sense. Well, happy National Tequila Day. Bel- happy belated <laughs> National Tequila Day. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, drink some tequila while you're listening to this. If you haven't got a hankering, we've talked about it probably more than we talked about Whalen Jennings. Yeah. Um, we're gonna sip this tequila. What do you want to listen to? Do you want to listen to some Whalen and maybe some Jesse Coulter? Yeah, let's do All that. Right, let's put a record on. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that was harsh. Here's the thing. You've had one sip, so you're a bit acclimatized. When you take another like really small sip before you finish it, just really swirl it around your mouth. And now oh, just kind of do it. like a... Like breathe, breathe, like you can kind of taste it when you breathe it in. But now slowly, just like have a sip of what's left, and like just kind of like savor it, because it like the aggressive part has already like hit your palate, and yeah. now you're climatized. Now it's not going to taste like harsh, hot booze. You're going to taste more of like the agave flavors. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Country, country music.